Galatians 5, 1 to 15, hear the word of the Lord. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. For you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There is a difference between mathematicians and engineers. And I know that because I studied math uh, in university and we had engineers in our class. So at the beginning, we looked alike. We were taking many of the same courses, many of the same math courses. But then the engineers began to drop out and the math majors continued on studying math. Uh, The engineers went on to go do practical things with the math that they had learned. But the math majors uh, continued to do pure math, which doesn't concern itself with the real universe. It is content at times uh, simply to stick with theoretical questions. And really, all of math is made up. There's something in math called imaginary numbers, and that's a little bit misleading because all numbers are imaginary. All of them are theories. All of them are ideas that are out there. And all of math deals with these sort of questions. Uh, For example, this is how mathematicians spend their time. The Collett's conjecture says, pick a positive integer. So one, two, three, any integer you want. And if it's even, divide by two. If it's odd, multiply it by three and add one. And then you get the result and then do the same thing. If it's even, divide by two. If it's odd, multiply by three and add by add one. And just keep doing that, and eventually, eventually, you will get back to one. Now, nobody's been able to prove, they've tested millions of numbers, but nobody has yet been able to prove that that will work for all numbers. So mathemat- mathematicians work on that kind of a problem. <laughs> Engineers, on the other hand do things like I just read about, uh, actually just got this yesterday, this magazine, the uh, Duke Electric Vehicles Group, a group of engineers, uh, they just broke the world record for fuel efficiency. Congratulations. It says, 
uh, they're quoting here, and one of their one of their uh, leaders said, "The math said that we could beat the record." This is somebody named Grady, class of eighteen, then president of Duke Electric Vehicles. But there was a big gap between the math saying that and actually doing that. And then at the end of the article it says, this time the math added up. Well, the math always added up, but what does he mean? The math was enable, enabled them to make the vehicle from scratch so that they could break the world record. That's what engineers do. So we have the theory, and then we have the application of the theory. I went to seminary as well, and in seminary, there are different departments. And one of the departments is called the Systematic Theology Department. And then there's another department called the Practical Theology (laughs) Department. Now, that's probably a good way to look at it, but it does run a risk of giving us the idea that the Systematic Theology Department is the Impractical Theology Department. That is, it's just about ideas about God, in theory. And there is that danger of treating theology that way. What is theology? Theology is knowledge of God. And there is a certain delight of knowledge for knowledge's sake, uh, learning for learning's sake, theory for theory's sake. There is a, a certain delight in theory, especially if you're sort of bent that way. But it is dangerous when it comes to theology, knowledge of God, if we remain only at the level of theory and never put it into practice. Now, what we've seen in Galatians is theory, for the most part, up to this point. Galatians chapters 1 through 4 is mostly theology, mostly theory, mostly the knowledge of God. And then we have, in the second two, or the last two chapters, we have the application of that knowledge. And this is not um, an optional add-on when we get to the application, because knowledge of God should always do something. Knowledge of God should always do something in those who have it. And in fact, this is the test of whether we really know God or not whether it builds something in our life. And we're going to see today precisely what it should build in our lives. Now, picking up in verse 1, this is a pivot sort of verse. It, it, It may go with what goes before. It may go with what we're seeing today. And he says here, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. All through Galatians, we've seen that the problematic of this letter is that the Galatians had received the gospel about Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection from Paul. But then some people came in later. And when they came in later, they said, Paul didn't give you the whole story. In addition to believing in Christ for salvation, you need to do certain things. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the diet, uh, the Jewish diet. You need to keep some calendar items. And then you'll be, then you'll be okay. And Paul says, you were called to freedom. Don't go back to a system of slavery, a legal system of slavery. And then Paul says that the teachers there were teaching, especially now it becomes very clear that they were teaching circumcision. Look at verse 2. He said, Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, this is a a startling statement for the Galatians. Why? 
because they thought they were finishing the job. They thought that they were completing their conversion to Christ. And Paul says, you are not completing your conversion to Christ if you accept circumcision as a religious obligation. You are annulling your conversion to Christ. You are denying, you are undoing your conversion to Christ rather than completing it. And, and why does he say that? Look at verse, look at verse three. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You see, they thought by doing this one ceremonial law, circumcision, that they had finished. And Paul says, no, you've missed the point of what circumcision is about. Circumcision has placed you under the law. Circumcision has put you on the treadmill of law-keeping, and now you need to keep every single one of the laws perfectly, if you're going to get on that system, in order to be right before God. So, rather than completing, you have annulled. And rather than completing, you have just started. If you want to get on this, this legal treadmill, you have just begun, and you will never be able to do it. And uh, he says that by trying to be right before God, they have denied grace and they have denied Christ. Look at verse 4. This, this, is, this is very strong. But we've seen this dichotomy throughout this letter. It's either or. Verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So on the one hand... We have Christ, we have faith, we have grace, and on the other hand, we have law-keeping. And you cannot have both of these systems, and you cannot mix these systems as the way to be right before God. That's the question here throughout Galatians, and notice that he says that. You who would be justified, and we saw from the very beginning, what is justification? Justification is rightification before God, being right in God's sight. So Paul says, you have gone backwards. You have traded away God's free favor for a legal system. Now he contrasts that in verse 5 with what true believers have. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, and so here we have in verses 4 and 5, we have these three elements that always go together. We have God's grace, we have Christ, and we have faith. And he says, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So uh, those who are believers, true believers, who are believers in Christ by God's grace, have a sure and certain hope that we will be right before God. That is the, that's what he's saying here. We eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. Now this is interesting because this is how Paul often speaks. Well, do we have Christ's righteousness already or are we waiting and expecting to have it in the future? And Paul says, yes, exactly. That's right. <laughs> All that we have in Christ, we already have it and we will have it in more abundance in the future. That is to say, in terms of being justified, He has already declared us to be right in His sight. But then, as we look forward to that great and terrible day of judgment, what will happen on that great day of judgment? 
Those who are believers in Jesus Christ will have the righteousness declared before all. They will be justified on that great day when all the books are open. Therefore, for those who are in Christ, verse 6, circumcision doesn't matter. Now, this might look like Paul is contradicting himself, doesn't it? Between verse 2 and verse 6, it sounds very different. Look at verse 2. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then in verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So, which is it? Does it cut us off from Christ? Or does it not matter at all? Well, it depends on for what you're using it. If you are using it to try to be right before God, it cuts you off. It is a denial of Christ. It is a denial of grace. It is a rejection of faith. But if it's a cultural practice, well, you could do it or not. If it's part of your tradition, if it's part of the medical practice in which you are, it's, it's not a big deal. It, having it or not having it doesn't make you right or wrong before God. It is completely indifferent in Christ. As a means of trying to be right before God, it is a rejection of Christ. But in faith in Jesus Christ, it's completely neutral. What is important then? If neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, what is important? And here we we take this big step. We take the theory and we apply it. Now we know what really matters at the end of verse 6. In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In these two verses, 5 and 6, we have the Christian triad here. We have faith, hope, and love. In the order here of hope, faith, and love. No, it's in that order. Faith, hope, and love. And so what matters, he says? What matters in the life of of a true believer? This is it. Faith matters. And how do we know that somebody has faith? Faith always works by love. The evidence of faith, the necessary evidence of faith, is love. It's it's working love. It's active love. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a document that we Presbyterians love. It's a document written back in the 1640s. And uh, it is... It has been a a theological touchstone for many people over these centuries, and it has a beautiful description about faith. And it says, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the only means of justification. In the person justified, however, it is always accompanied by all the other saving graces and is not a dead faith, but works by love. So, we're justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. The faith that justifies is the faith that works through love. Now, if, if we would stop at the end of verse 6 and pick up in verse 13, it would flow very smoothly. But we have in verses 7 to 12 something of an interruption, something of a digression. And in this digression, so hold on to that idea. Don't hold, don't miss the, the big idea here. Faith works through love. But now we have a digression, a description of these false teachers. 
And Paul, whenever he thinks about him, he gets irritated. And here we can hear the irritation and even the sarcasm in his voice. And quickly, what does he say about these? He says, they cut off the Galatians. The Galatians were running well, and they cut in line. They cut them off to divert them from their course. Verse 7. Verse 8. Their persuasion did not come from God. He says, verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from the one who calls you. Then he, then he compared them to leaven, an insinuous evil leaven that gets all through the lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then in verse 10, at the end of it, he says that they would face God's judgment, whoever they might be. And then his, his climax in verse 12 is, is quite sarcastic. Um, and a little uncomfortable, but it says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, why did Paul say that? Well, what's circumcision anyway? Circumcision is an operation on males taking off a piece of the flesh. And Paul says, oh, if that's what they want to do, if they want to start cutting off pieces of, of private flesh, then just let them, let them just cut off the whole thing. Now, he's being sarcastic here. But there's also a theological point. And the theological point is this. That kind of surgery doesn't make you right before God, no matter how much you do. You can't get to God through this sort of thing. And so even though he's, 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 he's using sarcasm here, he's also making the, the constant point that that's not the way to do it. Now there's a contrast here between these false teachers and Paul himself. And Paul, in... Verse 11 describes himself and he describes all true preachers. This was what you should look look for in preachers. Paul says, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, perhaps some were accusing him of that for some strange reason. He says, why am I still being persecuted? And by the way, uh, Jews were not being persecuted by the Roman Empire at this stage because it was a legal religion. And Christianity was protected under that Jewish protection. But when it became evident that Christianity was taking a course that was distinct from Judaism, then Christians were exposed to persecution. So Paul said, if I were still under this legal protection, if I were still preaching persecution, then why am I, or I'm sorry, circumcision, why am I being persecuted? And then he says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What does he mean? If you can be right before God simply by having a little surgery or by keeping this diet or by keeping this calendar, then why Jesus, after all? Why why this message of the cross, of the Son of God become man, giving His life for us on the cross, which was an offensive message to the Jew, and it was an offensive message to the Gentile, offensive to the Jew, because the idea of a crucified Messiah was was inconceivable to most. And why to the Gentile? Because this was a man who was crucified as a Roman criminal uh, in weakness. And that didn't impress the Gentile world either. But he says, this is what the true preacher does. The true preacher preaches the gospel. The true preacher preaches the message of the cross, no matter how offensive, no matter how scandalous that message might be. And another thing the true preacher does is holds out hope even for those who look hopeless. Look at verse 10. Paul, in the middle of this condemnatory language about these these false teachers, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take 
no other view. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. There's a, the tender heart of a pastor that comes out in the middle of this, this strong language about these false teachers. He says, about you all, even though I've said that you're in danger of falling from grace and cutting yourselves off from Christ, even though I'm, I'm concerned about you and I'm perplexed about you, I have confidence, confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That's what a true pastor does. Look for these kind of pastors that preach the gospel no matter what and that hold out hope in Christ for all. I'm praying for people who walked away from the faith five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty-five years ago, thirty years ago, and I keep praying for them. Why? Because they're still alive and there is still hope that maybe, that maybe in God's grace, they will come back and we must not give up on anyone as long as there is still hope. Now, digression ended. Let's go back to verse 13 and you'll see how the idea is picked up here. Verse 1 is all about freedom. Verse 13, for you were called to, what's it say? Freedom, freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul recognized something that is always the case, and that is, we are liable to abuse freedom, aren't we? We give freedom to our children, and sometimes they're not able to handle it. Uh, our, our Constitution gives freedom to us, and sometimes we're not able to handle those freedoms, and we abuse those freedoms. Uh, the free speech, and freedom of assembly, and and, and the right to bear arms, for example. And we're not able to handle these freedoms and we, we misuse them. And this is always the, the case that, that freedoms are liable to be abused and misused. And Paul recognized that and he says, I have been insisting, I have been insisting on a law-free gospel all through this letter. I've been insisting that that's not how we're right before God, that we're out from under that slavery to the law. I've been insisting that we are free in Christ, but don't understand me to mean that freedom in Christ is a license to go on sinning. And think about that. What kind of freedom would that be after all? That's not freedom. That's continuing under slavery to, to go on in a licentious manner. So what Paul says here, rather rather than than a freedom to go on sinning, this opportunity for the flesh, ironically perhaps, he says, but through love, serve one another. It sounds kind of ironic, doesn't it? We're free in Christ in order to do what? Serve. To serve one another in love. And you might think, how is that freedom? But think about that. The one who is uh, always compelled to say what he thinks, that's a terrible sort of slavery, isn't it? The one who is always compelled to respond to any insult with insult, that's a terrible sort of bondage. The one who is always compelled to put himself first before others, that's, that's a, a terrible sort of slavery. But the one who is able to deny himself, deny herself personal privileges, in order to put other people first, that is the most exalted type of freedom that can exist. 
Let me ask you, who was the most free human being of all of history? Jesus was. And what did He do with that freedom? Did He jump to the front of the line always? Did He say, I am here because I am the Son of God and I am here so that you might might serve Me? Remarkably, what He said was, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So the most free human being in all of history, what did He do? He used His freedom to serve in love and to give His life as a ransom for many. So that's the kind of freedom that we have in Christ. To take a step back from our privileges, from our passions, from our desires, and to say, I want you to have this. I want you to go first. I want to take care of you before I think about me. And then we learn, and this is the, this is the crowning touch. We learn in verse 14 that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if we go back to Romans chapter 13, he says something very similar, but he spells it out more. Romans chapter 13, it's on page 1050. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Paul spells this idea out. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Go back to to Galatians chapter 5. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see what Paul just did? After four four chapters in which it looks like the law is is, is always against us and and crushing us and, and keeping us under slavery, now he says the law is actually... The, the rails on which we run as we're motivated by love. Let's try to put this all together. Because he's not contradicting himself. This is how it goes. First point in the argument. We cannot be right before God by keeping the law. We got that by now, right? Four chapters of that. We can be right before God only through faith in Jesus Christ. We have that as well, clearly through four chapters. Third point, and that's the new point here. Faith shows itself in love. And now the last point, love fulfills the law. So that which we couldn't do in order to be justified before God, we now can do in Christ as we serve one another in love. Now if you would ask most people, are you a loving person? Probably most of us would you know, grade ourselves, you know, with least a C plus or something like that. You know, I, I love people. I, I love people. I'm generally positive towards people and so on. But look at this commandment. And I think we pass over this. It's such a common expression. And we pass over how very radical this is. Love your neighbor as yourself. What that means is, whatever you do for yourself, do that for your neighbor. What do you do for yourself? Do you feed yourself? Then feed your neighbor. Do you clothe yourself? Then clothe your neighbor. 
Do you get medical attention for yourself? They get medical attention for your neighbor. Do you have a roof over yourself? Then, then work to get a roof over your neighbor. Do you see how radical this is? This is not simply a, a, a good sentiment towards humanity. This is a concrete action doing for others what we so naturally do for ourselves. So we see that this is a, uh, a, a piece of homework that will never, ever uh, finish repaying. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can see the opposite of that in verse 15, where Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now we see something that was going on in the Galatian church, and that is they were being nasty with each other. They were biting and devouring each other. And Paul says, you're going you're gonna to eat each other up. You're going to destroy each other. And, and this is what happens, by the way, when churches go back to a, a, a law-keeping mode in order to establish righteousness before God. They start becoming nasty people with one another. Why? Because it's all about my performance and your performance. And then it becomes about pride, and then it becomes about competition, and then it becomes about comparison, and then it becomes about who can outdo the other person. And then it devolves into nastiness. That's where it ends. And it's ironic, isn't it, that those who focus on law-keeping not only do not keep the law, but end up being nasty with other people. In contrast, those who focus on Christ are free to love others, and then in the process, guess what? End up fulfilling the law. So the law gets fulfilled after all, through faith in Christ, which works through love. I know that Guadalajara, Mexico, and South Florida are different places, and I am still, after two years, trying to adjust to some of these differences and continue to be surprised by things. Even though I grew up here, I'm still trying to get acculturated. Um, but I am sure that three factors that contributed to the growth of the church in Guadalajara in Mexico are also operative here. And uh, when people ask me to describe what happened in Guadalajara, Mexico, how the work began with four, the Trotter family with two little girls and Sandy and, and me, uh, and how it ended up with multiple churches of about 500 people or something like that. What happened? How did that happen? And it's interesting, uh, go, looking back particularly on the elements that brought it about, and I mention this to you because we're all thinking about how is it that we can grow as a church in this context? These are the three things that happened, basically. Christians spontaneously shared the gospel with others. We didn't do hardly any evangelism training. We didn't do hardly any exhorting people to go out and share the gospel. They were so excited about Jesus Christ that they went out and told people about Him. The second thing is, we taught the Bible. We taught the Bible. In any of our meetings, in all of our meetings, we taught the Bible. And then the third thing that contributed to the growth of the church in Guadalajara, is that we loved each other. And when people would come into our assembly, they would be struck by those two things. They'd say, wow, the Bible is really important to you, isn't it? And we'd say, yes, it is. Because it's the Word of God and it's all about Jesus and that's what we preach here. And the other thing they would say is, this community is amazing. I've never seen people like you all. I don't understand what you all are about. And I want to know more. 
And many were drawn in by the loving community that we had. That's going to be no different here. Even with the, the cultural differences between Mexico and South Florida, what are the three elements? Telling people about Christ, teaching people about Christ, and showing people what Christ's love is like by loving each other. Now you might think, well, that's a tall order. And it is a tall order, but we need not be overwhelmed by it because it's not so much our work, but the work of the Holy Spirit in us, which, by the way, is the topic of next week's text. So let's pray. Our God, we thank You that now we finally come full circle. Having learned that we cannot keep the law, but that we can be saved only through faith in Christ, now we find that that faith produces love, and that love fulfills the law. And so Your holy law is fulfilled after all in us. And as we will find out soon, fulfilled in us who walk not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Father, we pray that You would do a great work in us, a great work of producing faith that shows itself in love. And we pray, O God, that we would inch ever closer to that exalted commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we thank You for Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We pray that in our words and in our lives and in our church, in our marriages, in our families, in our interaction with each other, that people would hear about Jesus and that people would see Jesus' love lived out. That we wouldn't just have the theory, but that we would have the practice. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.